Good afternoon, everybody. It's a huge honour to be here. It was lovely to be invited. When um, I first got a phone call from Mark the other day, I thought, oh, yes, fabulous, an afternoon spent talking about R.S. Thomas. And then I must admit, the closer I got to it, the more I thought there'll be a room full of very knowledgeable people on R.S. Thomas. So um, I'm assuming... Um, I'm kind of assuming a, a basic level of at least knowing who he is. That's what I'm assuming. Um, which I think is probably a good start. But I'm also assuming a lot of interest in him, which is probably why you're all here, even though Mark can't be here. So we're going to start from that perspective. Um, when I was looking at the information which Mark put together for today, I had a quick look at the paragraph, and he's obviously called this session Such a Fast God. And uh, those of you who know R.S. Thomas will probably immediately have recognised that that is a line from one of the poems in your handout. It's from the poem, if I can find it, Pilgrimages. He is such a fast God. And hopefully that will come up as part of the theme as we go on. But as I was reading that paragraph, he quotes um, Seamus Heaney uh, talking about Thomas. And he says that Thomas's poetry makes a place where meaning is forged in mystery. And that, I think, is a really beautiful introduction to the, po to the poetry of R.S. Thomas, a place where meaning is forged in mystery. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But I thought it would be nice, nice, required to start by reading a poem from R.S. Thomas. And I'm going to begin by reading one of the poems on your handouts because I think this is a, a lovely introduction to some of the core, not just core themes in his work, but some of the stylistic points in his work. And in Thomas's case, how he writes is as important as what he writes, as the two reinforce each other. I'm not saying it's not the case for other poets, but there's something, something about the crafting of poetry in Thomas's work which is absolutely fundamental to his work as a poet. So, The Kingdom. This is from the curiously uh, named collection, Hmm. And uh, Hmm is from the year 1972. In fact, I realised just now, looking at through all the poems I've chosen for today, that all of these poems are from the 70s onwards. Um, probably no coincidence in terms of some of the themes which we'll be drawing out. But um, that's not to say his poems from the 40s to the early 70s are not absolutely worth reading. But hmm is from the 1972, uh, The Kingdom is from the 1972 collection. I'm going to have to be slightly careful as we read the poetry because they make me quite emotional. So um, that, that is, it's called The Kingdom. As often with Thomas's poems, there will be um, poetic content and the title will give you, give you the entry point into the poem. So, of course, uh, well, I say, of course, whatever I say about the poems today is entirely provisional. I hope you realise that, um, because we will all have our own responses to the poetry. And considering he was a poet for whom meaning is forged in mystery, it's always going to be important to remember that they will remain something of the mysterious, even as we enter into the poems to try and mine their meaning. But for me, the kingdom is redolent of the kingdom of God. And that um, flipped over world view, which is very Thomas and very gospel, of this world where the poor man is king, 
the consumptive is healed. Mirrors in which the blind look at themselves. And this is a beautiful bit. And love looks at them back. So, so this, is the, this is Thomas's vision. And if there's anybody here, and it's quite often the case that people see Thomas as a very bleak and dour, an unyielding kind of a character. And thankfully, the picture we have on the front is one of the rare pictures of him looking very happy and smiley. Then this, I hope, gives a lie to that. It's not to say that he couldn't be like that. But there is something at the heart of Thomas's poetry which is about God's love. And I will return to that point. The discovery of what it means to be loved by God in the bleakness of the world lies at the heart of quite a lot of his poetry. So this kingdom of God is both far off, unimaginable, nothing like the world that we inhabit, but it takes no time to get there and admission is free. The only thing we need is to present ourselves with our faith green as a leaf. So the kingdom, paradoxical, spinning the world round on its axis, saying it's a long way off, but actually it's right here, right now. This is real gospel stuff. And so there is this, at the core of Thomas, this constantly flipping backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards in meaning. And there is something beautiful and life-giving in this poem. But to add an extra kind of twist, this poem in the collection Hmm, sits between two other poems. And sometimes where you find Thomas's poetry in the collection tells you something about him as well. So the kingdom sits between the poem, which is called Hmm, and another poem, which is called The Coming. We will end by reading The Coming. It's actually on the handout you have. The Coming reaches into the idea of Christ entering, entering the world in response to desperate human need and the reaching out of spindly arms from the place of, of crucifixion. Thomas paints a picture of Christ and God looking at the place of crucifixion, seeing need and saying, that's where I'm going. So there's something again about God's love there. However, if you flip back to the poem before the kingdom, which you can have a look at, that's not on the sheet, but have a look at this in, in the collection if you have the collected works. The poem, hmm, is a much bleaker vision. In this poem, what we have is the bleak vision of God reaching out to children who are so bent and broken that they cannot get to him. That does not have any sugaring of any pill in it. That poem is Thomas at his bleakest, you could say. So there will always be this mysterious um, thundering in of God's kingdom and then backing away from it and saying, yeah, but it's not really like that, is it? That's not the world we live, is it? But let's enter it into it a bit more and discover what it means to live in this mysterious place. That is my uh, five-minute pocket um, I picture of Thomas's poetry. But before we enter into things in any more detail than that, after that kind of brief summary of how his poetic world turns on its axis all the time, I thought, with your permission, I would um, say a little bit about what brought me and R.S. Thomas together. 
I suspect it may be the case for some other people sitting here as well, this kind of story. But um, there was a time, many moons ago, when I, I felt like the faith world that I inhabited was too binary. Um, that I was asked to, at some level, whether I was or not is another matter, but I felt I was being asked to align myself with the good or the bad, with um, the right or the wrong, with, with the happy or the sad. And that once one had aligned oneself, it was quite difficult then to do the read across and to understand the enormous complexity, spiritual and emotional complexity, of our place in the world. And after much kind of wrestling over many years with this sense of living in a binary religious world, I discovered Thomas. And I, it's about 25 years ago, I suppose, that I, I discovered him. And what I discovered reading R.S. Thomas, is, this is maybe interesting, especially for those of you who aren't familiar, actually, with him, is that this is a person who, um, he was a priest, obviously, he was a priest in the church in Wales, an Anglican priest in the church in Wales. He had a reputation of being the Victor Meldrew, Meldrew of the poetry world, a bit of a miserable old what's-it. Um, there was a kind of a bleakness and a doerness about him, but there was also this extraordinary ability to ask the hard question. It seems like, when you read Thomas, there is no area which cannot be plumbed for questioning, for doubt, for an exploration of mystery. And I discovered in Thomas somebody who just gave permission to walk into a world of questioning about faith. Some who read Thomas believe this is the world of a man who, at his heart, doubted. I have to say, I completely disagree with that. I think there is something about the robustness and the sheer paddling aroundness of his faith which tells me that here was a man whose God was so far bigger than any of the questions that he felt it was fine just to get in there, get on with it, get asking questions and constantly to arrive at new images and to keep turning around, turning around his God and discover a new way of seeing God or a new way of discovering how God worked in the world. So that was my entry point into Thomas, this man who has been called a mystic, and he's been called a prophet, and he's been called somebody caught between a doubtful faith and faithful doubt. Um, he's been called somebody who has the, um, the intensity of the prophet, all of these things. He is somebody who permits you to ask questions. <coughs> And so for the rest of this session, I thought what we'd do uh, before the coffee break is take a little bit of a tour of Thomas's life. A very brief overview, it's very simply told, the bare bones of it. But then we'll go into that in a bit more depth, because there is embedded in this quite, on the one level, quite small life, was um, a journey in his poetic output and his relationship with God, which opens up opens up the world and we can also ask the question who was the God Thomas discovered as he encountered God in greater depth and then we're going to have a, a bit of a closer look at gaps when I say gaps what I mean by that is God absent and present 
what is all of that about? What is it if we, have, if we talk about God not being there or God being there? And there's something about his own journey, I think, with how he understood space, which we'll look at in a bit more detail. That, I have to say, is, is, is kind of a mixture of what people commonly say about Thomas, but also what I feel about Thomas when I kind of get into his work. So, uh, again, take it as um, an invitation to get into Thomas rather than the gospel of Thomas. Certainly not that. Right. So, Thomas's life. Um, he was born in 1913. He was born in Cardiff. And he died eventually in the year 2000. He died in North Wales after quite a long time of alienation from the church, actually. Um, and it was the vicar of Port Maddock who, um, along with the then uh, Archbishop of Wales, who helped him to find a way back to some kind of sense of, uh, if not comfort, accommodation with the church, which I think he felt was a bit too, too small for God, really. Um, and, well, you know, everything's a bit too small for God, really, isn't it? But um, that was some of the, this story he went through. The family he was born into is very interesting. His mother was a South Walian, quite an aspirational Anglican, I suppose is how you might describe her, um, living at a time, of course, in Wales when anybody who hoped to be anybody tended to associate themselves with uh, a more anglicised vision of culture. Um, his mother married a man who was deeply North Walian, um, spoke Welsh, uh, Welsh to his boots, um, culturally Welsh. And so what we have then was something which was a kind of point of tension for Thomas. Uh, and he, he wrestled with that. A lot of his early poetry is wrestling with this point of tension. And he stopped wrestling in an uncreative way and started wrestling perhaps in a more creative way when one of the great Welsh poets and writers Saunders Lewis said to him but don't you realise great art is born out of tension and at that point Thomas found his way in this point of tension was creative rather than restrictive it did nevertheless remain a, a difficult point for Thomas that he could never write poetry in Welsh he wrote poetry in English, which was, in his case, literally his mother tongue. Um, and that was a point of um, pain for him. But he wrote prose in Welsh. And one of his great pieces, which was called Neb, N-E-B, or Neb, probably, was written in Welsh. And Welsh was, uh, it's, uh, sorry, Neb is quite a curious um, autobiography, which was only translated in English in the 1980s. And the word neb uh, is Welsh both for someone and no one, which gives you some idea about this was quite an important word for Thomas. He had this sort of slight sense of his identity shifting quite a lot. And in neb, he writes about himself in the third person for quite a lot of the text. And then eventually, uh, at about two-thirds of the way through, I think it is, he refers to himself in, in the first person. Um, so he did, he did write some prose in Welsh, uh, but he couldn't write poetry in Welsh. Some of you may have read a book called The Man Who Went Into the West. Any, any, any nods here? Yeah. And that is an interesting story. It's about, really, at its heart, it's the story of, um, am I humming? 
I can hear a kind of a... That's quite R.S. Thomas. I'll come back to that. Um, but the, the man who went into the West is really the story of a man who went into the West. He, um, he was a Welshman who was seeking his identity by travelling further west throughout his life. So when he was first ordained, he went to the borders, um, so the borders of England and Wales, the marches, and he was a, a curate in a parish, uh, two parishes, Chirk and Hanmer. Um, and I think must have had a bit of a ghastly time. And the reason I say that is if any of you has read a book called Bad Blood by Lorna Sage, which is about possibly the most horrendous vicar the world has ever known, <laughs> who was her grandfather, um, R.S. Thomas was a curate in his parish at that time, which I kind of worked out but just by putting dates together. And eventually I checked it with a man um, called Tony Brown. He used to be the professor up in Bangor who looked after the R.S. Thomas International Studies Centre, which sounds fab. It's about the size of this table. Um, but it's, it's a really, really good resource. And he confirmed, he said, yeah, that's why he was a curate, which can't have been much fun. But from the marches, he then went west, further west. His first parish was in a place called Manavon, uh, which is sort of yeah, just, just west. That was in 1945, and that was where he really started writing poetry in earnest and being published in Manavon. And um, he was inspired by the people around him, in some ways in a positive way, and in some ways in a less than positive way. Um, he had this idea that if he went into the Welsh hill farms, that he would discover um, the kind of the... He, used to, he had this phrase which was um, the real Wales of his imagination, which is kind of weird, isn't it? He had an imaginative vision of Wales, and he thought that that was the reality. And he thought he'd find what he termed the kind of the noble savage. Um, and what he discovered was ordinary people living very difficult lives. And it was whilst he was in Manavon that he invented... Um, a, a figure, a composite figure, who he called Iago Prodach, who, which is the name for um, a hill farmer. His uh, fictional hill farmer or peasant, he calls them peasants, sadly, um, who was a figure who lived and survived in this very difficult uh, hillside life. But one of the things that did happen to him in Manavon is his muse was awakened big time. He started off writing, writing quite vitriolic poetry about why these ordinary people really didn't love the aesthetics of the Anglican church and getting quite angry about this. You know, why don't they love stained glass and why don't they love George Herbert and why don't they love Thomas Tallis? You know, well, <laughs> and he realised why in the end, that that wasn't, wasn't their life. That was not how they met with God. Um, and he began to write new poetry in which he was able to say things like about this fictional Yago Pravach, his name too is written in the Book of Life. These are people living hard, hard lives who were no more or less godly than he was, although he had a particular vision. And he started to question God's ways to humanity at this point. He told on many occasions a story of one morning going out and over in the fields, he saw a man 
doing back-breaking work, docking mangles in a field. And he saw this man and thought, this is really tough work that you're doing. He went visiting, he did his thing, and he came back at the end of the day and saw the same man in the same field doing the same thing. And that was a, a, a moment which changed his life. And he began to think, I have to know more about this God. Who is this God who inflicts this tough, miserable, back-breaking, harsh life on people? These people who've survived for centuries in the toughest, toughest of conditions. So that was an important moment. From Egloisvach, sorry, from Manavon, he moved to Egloisvach in the 1950s, mid-50s. He was heading further west, and he thought in Egloisvach this would be where he would um, find more of the true Welshman. In fact, he found an awful lot of retired English army generals um, and sherry parties and stuff like that. And, and he discovered that this really, really wasn't what he thought everything was about. So in the 50s and early 60s, um, he felt that his poetic muse abandoned him because there were no salt-of-the-earth people around him who were drawing out this re-understood vision of God in the world. Now, some people regard the some people regard these years as fallow years, and I I kind of want to say, possibly, but probably fallow in the truest sense of the word. Fallow in the sense of something was lying dormant, possibly poetically within him, whilst a new understanding was emerging, because these years of living in Egloisvach, where he felt that. Yago Prothoch was in the past, and he didn't know what lay, what lay ahead poetically, are profoundly significant years. There is a whole load of prose that comes out of this year's, um, uh, a frame for poetry, words in the poets, the penguin introduction to religious verse. There's a lot of prose that Thomas started to write at this point, which is all about what it means to be a religious poet. What does it look like to be a religious poet? What is it to be religious? And if you look at his introduction to the uh, Penguin Book of Religious Verse, there's quite a lot in that. As Well, what does it mean? What do we mean by religious? Are we just talking about religious themes? Or are we widening things up here to talk about how we engage with the entire world? And he started to make moves himself within himself as he thought about these things. He also went, this is part of these years too, he went through a period of moving into the interior. So having done lots of his poetry as being about the out there, about the people around him, about the people he loved, the people who puzzled him, the people who made him think about God, he started going on an, on an inner journey. I'm not sure he would have used that language, but some of the poetry shows this move inwards, as he explored what it means to be a religious poet, what does it mean to enter this interior world and re-understand our relationship with God? And so in the 60s, you start to get this really important phase, which is just before the most stupendous explosion of religious poetry. There's one poem which I'm afraid I haven't put on that sheet, but it's a poem called This To Do. Does anybody know it? This To Do. Um, 
Has anybody got it on their person? I can, I can lift it up. Yeah, Leslie, do you want to? Could, do you mind reading it, Leslie? Thank you. I find that poem a remarkable poem, not least because it's almost a shock reading it. If you read his poetry all the way through, and then suddenly in the middle of that collection, you get this to do. It's almost as if you're watching a drama on stage, and the main actor turns to you and addresses the audience. It's a bit like, I don't know what you would call it in dramatic terms, it's a kind of, is that a breaking of the fourth wall? I don't know, but it's as if the actor turns and directly addresses the audience. It has that shock quality to it. And what you suddenly hear is the voice of a man who's saying, I have to go inside. I have to drop the plumb line down. I have to make new discoveries. And the tone in his work, I don't want to oversimplify this, but the sense is that the tone in his work starts to shift in these years, in the 60s. And he moves into this interior space. And it's from now on that you start to get poems like um, Kneeling. Um, I, I don't think I put Kneeling on here. Uh, if we've got time, I'll read that later. Kneeling, which is about this man kneeling in church with his wonderful lines in it. The meaning is in the waiting. Suddenly, he's not somebody who addresses things out there, but he's waiting on God. This is a huge shift that was going on in these middle years of his writing in the 60s. I'm going to get a bit of a lick here. Does anybody want to stop or ask me a question at this point? Or no? okay. So this was an important time. There's also some stuff going on culturally as well in the 60s, of course. And he was a man of his time. Honest to God came out in the early 60s, which fundamentally challenged all the Anglican religious language um, about God, and it was kind of light blue touch paper and retire stuff, wasn't it, Honest to God? Still a remarkably fresh book to read, if you want to read it, by John Robinson, in which John Robinson said, we have got to get rid of this this sort of um, caricature imagery of God up there and us down here. And so there was something going on in the ether. Things were changing. Thomas was part of that, and he went in, into the interior. And then probably the most important move of his life took place, which was his move in 1967 to Abadaron. Uh, Abadaron, that most westward of parishes, if you... I'm sure you could picture it, but if you can't, he's now gone to, if this is Wales, um, he's gone there. He's gone to the tip of the finger, the, uh, the upstretched arm of Wales. He was on, at the, on the end of the world. And it was in Abadaron, when he'd gone as far west as he could possibly go, that he did discover the kind of Welshness that he was looking for. People spoke Welsh routinely every day. He uh, conducted services in Welsh, although he always had quite a strong English accent, apparently. Um, but there he was at the summation of the search for his identity. And this had a profoundly significant impact on his religious poetry. He realised that he could now focus in a way which was free from all this concern about who am I? How Welsh can I get? 
How can I resolve these identity issues? How can I turn away from the muse that's gone and I don't know what's ahead of me? Now he discovered this great outpouring of religious poetry. He said at this point, once he'd arrived at Abadaron, that he was freed up. He'd reached the end of his searching. That there is nothing more important, he said, than our relationship with God. And this is what he felt now able to write about. So, he started asking more questions. He started writing about God from every perspective you could imagine. And so we have to ask the question at this point, or maybe I want to ask the question at this point, who was the God he discovered that he wanted to write about? Well, it certainly wasn't, there was no binary vision of God here. There was no God good, other stuff bad. There was no, uh, if we're Christians, everything's happy type stuff going on here. The God he discovered, I would suggest, is a God who was so ubiquitous that God often seemed not to be there. That was one of the paradoxical hearts of his faith. If God is everywhere, it looks like he's nowhere. I'm not sure what people's theology is here, but if you imagine, if you imagine, if you believe God is absolutely, fundamentally present in this room, in you and me, in the bricks, in, in cups of water, if God is that present, where do we find him? It's a kind of, he reached this sort of almost mind-blowing, does a fish know it swims in water stuff. God had become so present to him that he could not be discerned. And this, I think, this shift, I think, this sense of, I'm going to use the word in a very loose way, the sacramentality of the world, had, um, had a long trajectory to it. Since the point when he started going into the interior and sinking to his knees, feeling compelled to sink to his knees in prayer, he had increasingly discovered that the spaces around him were not voids, but were places that were pregnant with God's presence. This, of course, was very much an experiential thing. This, I'm not talking about he read a th book of theology on it and therefore decided this. He did find theological read-acrosses. Paul Tillich was a huge influence for him. And if you now go to the International R.S. Thomas Study Centre, you'll find the remnants of his library uh, including his Paul Tillich, which has got, he's got minimal annotations, but he has a few annotations all around the stuff where Paul Tillich talks about God as the ground of our being. So that resonated with him and informed him. But there was also for him the lived experience of if we sink to our knees in prayer and open ourselves out and surrender to the God who is so mysterious in his ways with us, then the discovery for him was that God is everywhere. God is not absent in the way he thought he was. Now, the next bit is very much my take on his stuff, but sometimes if you read the earlier poetry, what you sense, what I sense, is almost like a void, an emptiness. He looked over that field to where the man was docking mangles, and it was like somebody at the other end of the universe 
a bit of a wave, but a massive, massive void between them. And then as time goes by, these spaces start to be filled. And he talks about God holding the spaces. Actually, the spaces aren't just benign, but deliberate and God-given. Because it's in the God-givenness of the spaces that we are called out to keep searching. I hope some of this will become a bit clearer when we look at a bit of the poetry. But the idea, I think, went from we're surrounded by nothing to actually, no, it's not nothing, it's God is present, to that's deliberate. That's deliberate. There is a space between us and God because where there is a space, we search. As soon as things are tied down, the search stops. So once we, are lock, once we lock God in with fact and don't open God out in mystery, we are sunk. Because there's no reason to go any further except live with the fact. He, his contention was there is yearning in the mystery. There is yearning in the something which draws us on and draws us on. So, if we have something like um, kneeling, which I will, I will read you because it's such a fabulous poem. This is a poem um, from the time when he was uh, moving into the interior world in a much more focused way. He'd written some earlier poems on being in church, praying in church. One is called In the Country Church, and one is called In Church. And they're earlier poems. And they have a, a sense there of somebody in church praying in solitude. So there is space around him, but there is a kind of um, solitariness about it and a hope to rush to the end of what is being waited for. So, and that's one particular vision he had earlier, earlier on. If we listen to kneeling, it's very short, just listen to it, see what sense you pick up as, as we read through it. For me, this is someone who is not alone. He's not alone in church. This great throng of spirits around him, congregation members, possibly, the saints, the lives of the saints, also possibly, but he's not alone. And he's saying, God, prompt me. So he wants that prompting from God. And then that great line, but not yet. When I speak, though it be you who speak through me, something is lost. The meaning is in the waiting. Space is pregnant with God. Even where God is not discernible, God's life is coursing through us. And so he developed this vision of God absent and present all at once. So present that God feels absent. Absent and yet discernible in the slightest movement. Some of the poems pick that up later. The presence, which is one of the ones here, is great for picking that one up. This I'm sure you'll recognise, is takes us deeply into the apophatic tradition. And Thomas was a great uh, proponent. He wouldn't have said, I'm a proponent of the apophatic tradition, but he's definitely drawing on, on it. This idea that um, presence and absence kind of shimmer around each other. Frequencies is his, his 1978 collection. is possibly one of the most powerful collections which embodies this vision. 
And you'll see some of the poems here are from frequencies. And what, the, of course, the apophatic tradition tells us is that um, it's drawn from, I guess, primarily from the 5th century writer uh, Dionysius, Pseudo-Dionysius, um, and his vision, he was writing at a time when um, all sorts of ways of understanding God were being put out there. He was writing at a time when people were on the heresy hunt, basically. And so people had to pin things down very tightly at the time Dionysius was writing. He did something very different. He said, we can't, we can't actually pin things down because God is bigger than everything we try to pin down. So he wrote his works were all about naming, naming God and saying... God is this, but no, God is not this, because God is bigger than this. God is that, but no, God is not that, because God is bigger than that. So his way of writing was constantly to push people beyond their definitions of God. And he pointed out, fundamentally, that our definitions of God are always completely limited by our own understanding. So if you get the, the vision of, um, if you imagine, for example, um, walking, I walked. No, I won't do it because I missed the, the microphone. If you walked through this row of people and said, "You're like you are the image of God," then say, "Yeah, but God is not that." And you're the image of God, but no, God, God is not that either. Keep your know, God is good. No, that's, no, God is not that either. Because every time we fix God with our pictures and our words, we have to say, "But God is not that." Not because God is not love, but because God is so much more than we can ever possibly imagine. This was also at the heart of Thomas. Thomas is so present, sorry, God is so present, pardon me, that he is absent. But also, whatever we say God is like, God is not like that, because God is so much more than that. And this is a particular way of speaking about God. It's about, it's, um, people call it unsaying. It's not not saying, it's unsaying. If you say God is like this, then you have to say, no, God is not like that because God is like that. But then God is like that. You unsay, you say something and then you unsay it. And that's very, very profoundly and densely metaphorical language, which was at the heart of Thomas's poetic style and which gave him access to this vision of God present and God absent. God is so here that he is not here. If we don't think God's here, we're wrong because God's here. So he started to use language which became denser in one sense, denser. And his uh, metaphor would be more and more powerful and explosive. And so from the mid-70s onwards, you get very explosive poetry, glorious poetry, because it is so mysterious where he crunches up ideas against each other in a way that creates, creates a language which blows your mind. You think you know what he means, and then he throws in another image, and you realise you don't know quite what he means because he's trying to mess with your head when it comes to God. Because God is so much more than we could any of us ever imagine. When he was going through his great period of writing prose, about what does it mean to be a religious poet, what does it mean to be a poet, he started to say things like, a mark of the most mature poets is their use of adjectives. Uh, and he said that ad good use of adjective 
is the sign of a poet who is a brilliant observer. And what he was meaning by this is if you put adjectives together, this is metaphor, if you put adjectives together which don't necessarily fit beautifully with the noun that they are describing, then what you get is a brand new image. And once you get a brand new image, the mind opens up. We could say, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of something which is blue, a cornflower sky, and we all know what we mean by that. There's a kind of a, a blue, a particular blue quality about it. If we say something different, if we say um, a purple tulip sky, we think, that's a bit odd, what does that mean? Is there, a, there, is there a colour thing going on here? Is there something? What's the quality which is being created? So the idea is that if you start putting together language which doesn't necessarily and obviously fit, you get new meaning emerging. And once you have the capacity to open out meaning, then our experience and understanding of God can also be opened out. So this was something about his poetic style. As he developed as a poet, as he went on as a poet, some of his poetry becomes more dense, more explosive, more prismatic. It's like suddenly you're seeing light refracted out from all sorts of different um, areas. And the meaning deepens and deepens and deepens. And so what you get with Thomas, I think, is lesser clarification. It's not as he went on he became clearer about God or wanted to communicate clarity to us. You get the experience of a man who walked deeper and deeper into the mystery of God and wanted to share that mystery and give us permission to enter into it too. We have about 10 minutes left of this session. I'm sorry if some of you are looking at me like... Um, so I thought it might be an idea to spend some time having a look at a poem together, all of us together. And I'm going to read it first of all. This happens to be one of my favourite Thomas poems. And it gives a little bit of um, uh, a nose about in some of the things I've been talking about. It's the poem called The Gap. I'm going to read it first of all, then give us just a few seconds to settle with it. And then just say a few things about my experience of this poem. It's from Frequencies. Frequencies is the 1978 collection which was like an explosion in religious poetry. And the collection was called Frequencies, uh, that was the, the hum I heard earlier where I said, we'll come back to that, because Frequencies is, um, as a title, it signifies many things. One of the things it signified was radio frequencies, the idea that um, God is resonating all around us, like radio waves. So difficult to pick up, but we can always, almost always tune in. So it, it's there and, and we tune in. So, The Gap. Does anybody have any response to this poem that they would like to share or offer? I just, if, if some people over here can say, I'll just do a few highlights of what, of what was just being said. Um, that the Tower of Babel comes to mind. 
there is this vision of humanity um, conquering language, and therefore, if we conquer language in the way we, we think, well, we, we, you know, we use language in ways which can tie things down, and we think that once we've named things, then the naming of the thing um, means that we have captured the thing. And there is this wonderful reference to Kant here, the verbal hunger for the thing in itself, that our, we, we are hungry for language which ties down meaning. So in this first section, we have this sense of God suddenly waking up and thinking, oh, what on earth have they been doing? Goodness me, they've got really close. What am I going to do? And God suddenly saying, oh, no, keep the gap, keep the gap. I must keep a gap from humanity, which can look a bit cruel at first sight. It can look a little bit like we are being kept at arm's length. That can, can be the feeling. How to live with the fact. That was the feat now. How to make his rest on the edge of a chasm a word could bridge. So it's as if God is saying, as, as uh, we just heard, as Leslie made the point, that actually this is, we are getting so close now, so close with language. And what does he do? God who has been clearly anthropomorphised here, God leans over from where he is and looks in the dictionary, looks in the book that we use for language and spots to God's relief that there is still a blank um, by his name of the same order of the territory between them. It's tiny space, it's tiny gap. And so what does he do? He, he God, what does God do? Does this remarkable thing. And this is where we get this beautiful denseness of metaphor and imagery here. The darkness that is a God's blood swelled in him. What is that? Is that anger? Is that life? Is that what what is this dark swelling of God's blood? And he lets it. You could imagine, heavily anthropomorphized again, this blood swelling in him, and he lets it. You can imagine somebody taking a penknife to their, to their arm to get some blood out. He lets blood into this space. And so what he does is he fills the space which humanity is trying to fill with language. He fills the space with himself. He fills the space with his blood. What is that? I and mean, we may have many different responses to that. The response, obviously, which can immediately come to mind is, um, is Christ. The filling of the space with something sacrificial from himself. He fills the space. But then what does he do? He's filling the space where a word should be with the word capital W. Is that what's going on? Is he um, blotting the space so it can never be filled? And so if the space can never be filled with language, then we can never acquire um, a, a perfect linguistic representation of God. And therefore, in the space we're left with, we have to keep searching. Because if God maintains the space between us and God, then the search goes on. What is it? What does that mean for you? That sense that he's, he's doing something with, with the space. He's stopping humanity, finding the language. And he says he makes the sign in the space on the page. That is in all languages and none. So this is beyond, beyond language. That is the grammarian's torment. Yeah, we can't get a hold of this linguistically. And the mystery at the cell's core. 
So this is the same thing which lives deep within us. This is our DNA. This is the mystery of life. This is what quickens us. And he's saying, really, you really can't have the words for this. You can approximate to them, but you will never find the words. And the equation that will not come out. And then this wonderful image is the narrowness that we stare over. That beautiful coming together of images that don't quite fit. The narrowness that we stare over. This really narrow space and yet we have to stare. A tiny, something t potentially tiny to look at but still evokes from us a long-sighted staring into the eternal silence that is the repose of God. The very first line is, God wakes, but the nightmare did not recede. The final line is, over the, into the eternal silence, that is the repose of God. God is now resting again, having woken up in a bit of a panic. This poem, I think, is extraordinary for the way it moves, he takes us through the opening scenario, and then in a very typical Thomas way, there is a break midway through. And the laying out of the page is, is often significant with how he writes as well. He, he breaks it in the middle. And so that's a break in movement in the poetry there. And what you get is the, the first half, linguistically, is a bit more hurried, um, where he, he's trying to paint the picture of somebody trying to stop the panic. Goodness me, humanity is getting far too close. And then in the second part of it, the language becomes more languorous as well. There are more plosive sounds, the blank still by his name, um, the verbal hunger of the thing in itself, the darkness, the, the language is longer. And what you start to get is a sense of that rush receding. And this is part of his great poetic crafting. And that supports the themes of it, the themes of him saying, well, actually, what, what we have here is an image. It's an image at the heart of our understanding of God. We try to fix God with language, but we can't. We try to use language to name that which is unnameable because it sits at the very heart of our existence. We can't do that. But God doesn't leave us with nothing. God leaves us with this great picture of God's blood filling the space and with the, with the gap which allows us the yearning to continue the search over the narrowness that we stare over into the eternal silence that is the repose of God. <laughs>